I uh, just arrived from a three-day trip. I was in Los Angeles uh, working together with Fuller Theological Seminary on a few things. Uh, that's something I do on the side. My flight was supposed to arrive at a reasonable hour yesterday so I could come here prepared and refreshed. But you know how LAX is, people have flown into or out of. My goodness, delays just kept happening and I got in at midnight. So I'm going to do what my, my preacher brothers in the black community say. I'm going to start low and go slow. But you know what? The Holy Spirit's going to fill this place. I can, even as we're singing, I can feel it. I'm trying to conserve my energy. But if the Spirit moves, we welcome it. Amen. Amen? Amen. We've been in a series here at Woven called Living together now. It's not it's hashtag living. It's not that living together. It's been redefined what it means. Living together is a study through the book Life Together by Teacher Bonifer, German theologian who uh, protested Hitler during World War II. And you can hear the rest about that story. By the way, we have been giving out free copies of this book Life Together, and they're all gone. I think we have like one left in the bin. If you want a free copy. Just send your yellow communication card, and we can bring some more. And so this is our third week in this series. And the first two weeks, we talked about this foundational idea, human love versus spiritual love. Human love is full of the ego. It's full of my needs, even when I don't realize it. Human love is what I bring to the table when I say, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's human love. Spiritual love is the ideal. It's selfless. It's not, um, it's not driven by self-interest or self-preservation. Spiritual love uh, is the ideal. And that foundation was laid in the first two weeks of this series. Today we continue, and we're going we're gonna to graduate from chapter one today with another big idea. And today's, the title of today's sermon is Not an Ideal. Not an ideal. And by that, I mean community is not an ideal. This is probably the most famous passage in Life Together. Everybody, not everybody, but most people who've read Life Together are familiar. On page 27, you'll see this phrase every wish dream that is injected into community. Restart this. Every wish dream that is injected into community is a hindrance to genuine community. And here's the famous sentence. He who loves his dream of community more than the community itself destroys it. Wow, that's pretty deep. He who loves his dream of community more than the actual community in front of him or her becomes the destroyer of community. Why? Because we've set the ideal first. Now let me set the stage with an illustration. One, one of my favorite country movies, uh, or Western movies, because we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna hear a country song later. Sanctifying Monday to Friday, we can sanctify secular music as well, even country music. But Western, one of my favorite Western movies is Tombstone. Tombstone with Val Kilmer, uh, uh, Kurt Russell, Sam Elliott, and at the end, I'm going to spoil the whole movie for you, Doc Holliday dies. <laughs> 
And he's dying in his bed from tuberculosis, from consumption. He's sitting there, and he's wheezing. He's on his last breath. He's, you know, his deathbed. Kurt Russell plays Wyatt and he's trying to cheer up his dying friend. They're playing poker. Doc Hollis, I don't want to play poker anymore. And the doc says, why? He says, it's like his last conversation with his friend, his old friend. You know, they've been through the trenches, life and death together. And the last thing he tells his friend, the last admonition, Wyatt, what did you want? Wyatt, he looks at his friend, gets serious and says, all I wanted my entire life, I just wanted to live a normal life. I just wanted a normal life. I didn't want any of this crazy. I didn't want to be with these people. I didn't want to have a run-in with a cowboy gang. I didn't want just wanted a normal life. And Doc says something. He says, there is no normal. There is no normal life in life. There's just life. There's no normal life. I think oftentimes we pursue an ideal when we talk about, I just want a normal life. I just want normal neighbors. I, I just want a normal workplace. I just want a normal community, normal family. I just want a normal church. But behind that word normal, I just want a normal life. Why? There is no normal life. Why? There's just life. There's just life. And in the same way, we want a normal community or normal family, but there's just family. There's just community. There's just life. I think that's what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about in his statement. If we love our dream, our ideals of the normal church community or the normal community, more than the actual community that's in front of us, then we're going to destroy the community itself. In other words, the more we pursue an ideal, the less we accept the beauty that is right in front of us. That, I think, is the main idea. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about this. In your notes, you'll see four principles about community, four teachings about accepting the community that's right in front of us, I'm going to teach through these, but I'm going to put it into conversation with Scripture. Because this is not the church of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to teach Jesus Christ's book, Jesus Christ, we're going to teach God's book as we study what Bonhoeffer has to say. Our passage is Luke chapter 10, verse 29 to 37. It's the famous parable of who is my neighbor. Luke chapter 10. By the way, um, as Paul pointed out, our announcements are on our website, wovenchurch.org slash news. That's where our announcements are. But on the bottom, there is a link, and it says selections, scripture selections for this Sunday. If you scroll to the bottom of today's news, click on that link, it'll take you directly to biblegateway.com, which has our passage for today. So henceforth, you can access your scripture. You can access the scriptures. So, Listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 10. And as I, and this is literally the word of the Lord. It's Jesus speaking. And as I wrap it up, I'd like you to respond with, but I know, thanks be to God. Somebody challenged me. Let's do some more public recitation of scripture. So let's do it. I'm going to read it. And when I finish, respond in a clear voice altogether. Thanks be to God. So here we go. Verse 29, Luke 10. 
A lawyer is in conversation with Jesus and wishing to justify himself. This is not a legal lawyer like we have today. This is a religious lawyer. So religious lawyers were uh, in charge of not just civic, but religious law, religious and civic law. And so the lawyer in conversation with Jesus, wishing to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's one of those questions, one of those critical theory questions. It's like Pilate saying, and what is truth? <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of like, a you know, hold a skull in your hand and meditate on it. What is life? What is truth? It's like a, almost a, a question that's just going to go on and on forever. But Jesus comes right to the answer. He sees what this lawyer is doing. And Jesus says, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. The robbers stripped him, they beat him, and they went away, leaving this man by the side of the road, half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw this man who was beaten up, the priest passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, so, so far, two out of two, Jewish holy people, Jews. A Levite also, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, a Samaritan, clearly somebody who is not accepted in the Jewish community, was on the journey, came upon this man who was beaten up, and when he saw him, the Samaritan felt compassion and came and bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, the Samaritan brought him to an inn and took care of this person. On the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. This is his expense account. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer in verse 37 says, the one who gave mercy to him. And Jesus said, hear the words of the Lord, Go and do the same. I charge you now, not with my words, but with Jesus' words. Go and do the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for this word. Thanks be to God for this good word. Let's start off with the first principle and the first fill in the blank. It is this. Community kills wish dreams. Community is killed by wish dreams. Principle one, community kills wish dreams. Community is killed by wish dreams. And I'll unpack that. Now listen to the words of the lawyer, verse 29, who is my neighbor? And this is a question, like I said, it's loaded. It can trap Jesus. And what Jesus does is he deftly navigates this question. He doesn't get into a philosophical argument. But what he does is he sets a neighbor in front of the lawyer. And us as readers, we identify with the lawyer who says, well, here's a great teacher. Let me see if I can stump him with a great philosophical question. But Jesus looks at you. He sets a neighbor in front of you. And he asks you, well, tell me, who is the neighbor? Who is the neighbor in this story? Tell me. Who is the neighbor in this story? We want to say it's the Samaritan. We want to say it's the Samaritan. 
Samaritan, but actually the neighbor is the man who fell among the robbers. It's the dude that's beaten up lying on the, on the street. It's the person that everybody is avoiding. Mm. Wow. You know, I don't know if that's my mission. You know, I see some mental issues there. You know, I pass this guy every Sunday on the way to church and I see him sitting and he's uh, got a sign. Uh, I don't even like giving him money because my, my, my suspicion is he's going to go straight to the liquor store. I don't know if that's my mission, homeless care. That's not exactly my calling. Um, lo and behold, that person shows up at church. What do we do, right? It's not my mission. I don't know if this is what God is calling me to. And while we sit here debating, am I supposed to roll down my window or not? Am I supposed to do something or not? In swoops who? Not the Levite, not the priest, but the Samaritan. And the Samaritan hijacks the story. The Samaritan hijacks the story in this cascading narrative of care and becomes, I'm going to be the hero of the stories what the Samaritan does. It's like, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm driving down from Dallas to Houston on I-45 and there's somebody beaten up on the side of the road and while I'm debating, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this my mission? In swoops a Muslim refugee from Syria or an illegal from down south and takes the story away while I'm sitting here debating if this is my mission or not. Debating, are these my people or not? In the meantime, somebody else has gone and done the job and taken it away from me. You see, the interesting thing I find about this parable is what's confusing about we by default want to say the Samaritan is the, is the neighbor. No, the neighbor in this story is the person that's beaten up, the man who fell among the robbers. And the thing is, we overlook that person. Even as we read this story, we say by default, the Samaritan is the neighbor. But actually, the person overlooked in the story of our lives. Listen to what I'm saying. It's the person in the story of your life that you overlook that oftentimes is your neighbor. We like to pick and choose who our neighbors are, or who our friends or our inner circle is. But it is the person in the narrative that is overlooked, oftentimes that Jesus says is the neighbor. The person that's overlooked, just as we overlook in this story, the man who fell among the robbers. We're so interested in the Samaritan, in fact, we've sterilized the Samaritan, but we've forgotten that the neighbor is actually the person on the side. Oh yeah, he's there in the story too. You see, it's funny. So, Jesus asks not who is the neighbor, but in the end, he reframes it and says, who proved to be the neighbor? So that's how he spins it around. Who proved to be the neighbor to the neighbor? Do you guys follow? Who proved to be a neighbor to the neighbor? Because the neighbor is the person who's beaten up. So who is the neighbor to the neighbor? That's what Jesus is saying. Who is the neighbor to the neighbor? And the lawyer, he won't even say his name. Say it. No. Say it. Say it. The Samaritan. Say it. Samaritan. He wants Jesus provoking this guy. 
Because the guy does not like he is racist towards the Samaritan. And so he won't even say, say it. No, he won't. This is the one who showed mercy toward him. That's how much the Samaritan was an outcast. But we, in 2,000 years of Christian tradition, have made the Samaritan soft and fuzzy. We've made the Samaritan something sterile, something clean that we can manage today. And we talk about being a good Samaritan, but nobody talks about being the good person that's beaten up on the side of the road. So much so that we have romantic notions of the Samaritan. We've romanticized the Samaritan. We've said the Samaritan, wow, what an ideal. Understand, they were the scourge of the earth to the Jews at the time. The real neighbor is not these romantic ideals that we have about community. That is human love. It's kind of like, you know, being back on the team when you're when you're in grade school. I played baseball too, Paul. I probably wasn't as good as it good at it as Nathan is going to be, because my dad didn't often take me out to get a catch. And so when it came time to pick and choose the team, I was not the first, I was not the second, not the third. Do you know we live our lives like that? We, we, we talk about children doing, we're, we're just being children. We still do that. We pick and choose our team. Number one, number two, number three, those are the people I want. What would it be like if you saw the weakest person on, on the team and you said, I choose you. Or I accept you. I think that's what the gospel is about. Human love picks and chooses our teams. It rallies around us the strongest assets Assets, you hear that? What a loaded word. You are a great asset to the organization. Why? Because you helped me be. Human love self-serves, picks and chooses the team so I can win. Spiritual love, Jesus love, looks at the last person. And deliberately chooses that person. That's what it means to be a neighbor. That is the beginning of community. That is the beginning of community. You see, the lawyer, the lawyer, he had ideals of community. The lawyer would be the predecessor to rabbinic Judaism as we know it today. They had very strong ideals of what they wanted Judaism to look like. And Jesus was just messing everything up bringing in Samaritans and all these characters. We also have these ideals of community. We have these ideals like the, like, the, like the lawyer, these ideals of what we want community to be like, but instead all these strange fish that we didn't expect or anticipate hop in our basket. The community that we envisioned that we were going to build here at Woven did not happen the way we anticipated and the multi-ethnic church turned out to be harder than we thought. Harder. Listen to the words of Bonifat on page 26. I'm try to ramp it up here a little bit. You know, we're looking, this is what Bonifat says, we're looking for some kind of extraordinary social experience which we have not found anywhere else. 
What we're really doing is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. We're bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. When I lived in Seattle about eight years ago, I lived in Seattle for 11, 10, 11 years, and uh, the latter part of that I was pastoring in a church amongst the suburban white poor. And as I was pastoring in that area, I remember coming across a, a church planting proposal of a colleague. I think he was, I don't know if he was down in Portland or somewhere, but it's Seattle. That kind of explains a lot. And uh, I read his church planting proposal and it had Target. We're going to start a church and this is our Target. And the Target listed Subaru owners and indie rockers. I want to be part of that church. People who shop at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. And who only drink independent coffee. Fair trade. And I looked at this proposal. And I laughed. <laughs> I laughed. Because I could see myself in that. I could see myself in that. But I don't think God laughs. I think God looks at that and says, You've got something coming. I am going to pop that dream that wish dream, that ideal that you have, and you are not going to get what you want because what you want is so polluted with the self. It is so polluted with these muddled and impure desires about what Christian brotherhood is to be like. You hear that? Bonhoeffer continues, God's grace speedily shatters these dreams. Thank God he shatters our dreams. Amen? Wow, I didn't think you'd say amen to that. Really? You really think that, you think it's a good thing that God shatters your dreams? I don't like it when God shatters my dreams. I, I hate it. But for the sake of my own soul, thank God. Because if I got what I wanted, things would not look good. He shatters our dreams speedily, is what Bonhoeffer says. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by this great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. You see, disillusionment with a church community, it begins with the community. But then we realize it's not the community because every community is messed up. Any community I go to is going to have problems. So then we get disillusioned with God. And we get disillusioned with Christians. And then in the end we realize actually we get disillusioned with ourselves. Because if you're truly honest, you'll recognize that the thing that is most broken in the community is me. And yes, and I've been on that, I've been on that, I've been on that, that tirade. It is the pastor, it is the church, it is the culture, they are controlling, it's this, it's this culture, it's all of this and that. But in the end, in the silent night, in the darkest moments, we realize that the thing that is broken in community is me. That I can't say, man, that woman that I'm married to is the things that she does. You know, the longer we do that, the marriage will not get better. 
Marriage improves the moment I say, this is my side of the road. These are the things I start to work on today. Only then do I get healthier and better. Better to be, better to be, better to, better to be looking at my heart and having my wish dreams killed. This is the first principle. Community kills my wish dreams. It kills my wish dreams, but community can also be killed by my wish dreams, and I am so conscious of this as pastor of this church. Community not only kills my ideals, but my ideals will kill this church. My ideals will kill this church. The sooner I peel back on my ideals, God can say, finally, it's time for me to move and walk and come in church. We've been praying for the next... The third thing, revival, it's coming, friends. It's here. I feel it. I got back in last night from LAX airport. My least favorite airport at 12 midnight. I don't know how I got up this morning. But the Spirit is here. When this sermon is done, y'all just, you, you, you sing, you pray. You give your offering. You belt out. You fight. Let's pursue this revival. It's here. It's here. As soon as our wish dreams and our ideals are laid down in the grave, as soon as God shatters our dreams, God can move in with revival and fire can come from heaven and lives can be changed. Finally, that's the first principle. I need to move quicker here. Second principle, we're going low and slow now, we're trying to go faster. Second principle, the pathway to community is via disillusionment and then acceptance. Pathway to community is via disillusionment and then acceptance. You see, Jesus asks the piercing question in verse 36, who proved to be the neighbor to the neighbor? Right? The neighbor is the neighbor's there. Who was the neighbor to the neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor? You see, the question that Jesus turns around is not this idealistic question, who is my neighbor? As if we're going to write out a church planting proposal, my neighbor are, my neighbor are hipsters who have very long beards down to their belly buttons and listen to music that is independent and doesn't have any labels, uh, is not sold out, people who don't work for a major corporate. No! It's not who is my neighbor, Jesus says. Wrong question. The right question is, who proved to be a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? The answer to this philosophical, idealistic question in the spirit of Bonifer is realistic. It's realistic. Jesus is realistic. His answer is the one who showed mercy. In fact, he didn't even say it. That soul like Jesus, he will get you to say the right answer. And you're sitting there holding the bill, and Jesus walks away. And you're, 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 you're like, we're, we're standing there. Who was the neighbor? And I realized after all of my years, finally it took me 40 years of trying to pick and choose my best team, my fantasy team. This is the team that's going to go all the way to the end. And in the end, the answer, correct answer, all my life I've been failing this test. All my life I've been failing this test. Until finally, I hear and I say, I hear my mouth saying, the one who showed mercy. 
I get it. Jesus, it took me 41 years. I get it finally. I get it. You see, mercy is not condescension. We think it's condescension. We think, oh, look at those poor babies on TV, and oh, I want to fly out to you know these third world countries, and I just want to. I think mercy is accepting what God puts in front of you right now. You know, if I could just kind of speak the truth, I spent the last three days talking a lot about faith and race at Fuller Theological Seminary when we were out there. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. You know, one thing that drove me batty about my ethnic background, which I didn't understand, I still struggle with, and honestly, I need healing too, I need Jesus. But I couldn't understand why my people would want to show mercy and talk about going to mission trips overseas, or would go down south, for example, to Mexico, and would do all these great mission trips south of the border and cry and say, I love these children, I love these people. But when we come back to Houston or when we come back to America, we don't really show that kind of mercy when it shows up in our church. When it comes in front of me, it's not something that we, we, we really accept. That disturbs me to no end. But the truth is, I feel it, if I'm totally honest. Mercy is not condescension, far away and distant condescension. Mercy is how I live my life with the people who are in front of me today, in this moment. Am I listening? Am I loving? Am I caring? The one who showed mercy, do you hear Jesus? No. Do you hear your own lips saying those words? The one who showed mercy. Who showed mercy. Bonnet forgets this. He gets Jesus. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, it begins to be what it should be in God's sight. It begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better. That's the principle. The pathway to community, principle two, is via disillusionment and then acceptance. Pathway to community is via disillusionment then acceptance. Acceptance. That's the secret. That's a spiritual secret. But there's another spiritual secret. Acceptance is a big spiritual secret. It's, right? Those of you who I've taught to pray the serenity prayer, it's a big spiritual secret. Acceptance. But you know there's another spiritual secret. I'll teach it to you now. It's the third principle. The third principle is great spiritual secret. Community is built up with gratitude in the small things. Gratitude. Do you realize gratitude is a spiritual secret? Gratitude is a weapon. Gratitude is the tip of your sword. It's the tip of your spiritual sword. Your ability to be thankful, and Bonifer says this, it's our ability to be thankful for little things that enables us to receive big things. Our ability to be thankful for little things enables us to receive big things. Gratitude, gratitude is the weapon. Listen, you see in verse 34 to 35, listen to all the things that this stranger, the Samaritan does for the neighbor. He bandages his wounds, 
pours oil and wine on them. He puts him on his own beast. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, and he gave him an, he gave him an expense account. Whatever you want, you spend it, whatever you want to pay. You know what ingratitude says? Ingratitude says, why do I always have to ride donkeys? Why can't I ride in style? When am I going to get an upgrade? Always riding these donkeys. Why, why is it me that always gets beaten up? Why are people picking on me? God, you never take care of me. I'm such a victim, God. God, I never have enough. Hang on, do you realize, do you realize all the good that's been shown to you? We don't realize because we've been practicing, and this is not a, be offended, it's, it's the default human nature to practice ingratitude. That's the default. Do you know how you've crossed the spiritual threshold is when your gratitude list is longer than your ingratitude list. That's when we know we've crossed the spiritual threshold. In fact, Ignatius of Loyola, if any of you have ever heard that name, he's a master of spirituality. He said ingratitude is one of the deadliest sins. In fact, ingratitude is the deadliest of sins. Because what's so deadly about ingratitude, what's deadly about it is that God has been showing up in your life, condescending, showing you kindness after kindness, and so many blessings, but instead of seeing God, we're looking at, we're looking at everything else. Enter into that common life, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients, is what Bonifer preaches to us. Enter not as demanders, but as thankful recipients, we pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary small and yet really not small gifts. How can God entrust great things to someone who will not thankfully receive from him the little things? It's almost as if God withholds greater blessing from us because we haven't graduated from gratitude preschool yet. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, we actually hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. That's the third principle. Community is built up with gratitude small things. Gratitude. Fourth and last principle. Fourth and last. Community is a healing sacrament. Uh, I don't mean that theologically. There's quibbles here. I'm not going to get into that. But what I mean by that is community, it, it, it transforms us. It heals us. Community is a good place. It's a good place. In verse 32, when the Levites saw he passed by on the other side, he passed by. This is a heart sickness, friends. The inability to accept, the ingratitude that's behind that, to pass by, the inability to see humanity, 
you know, the great question, somebody, somebody active in the civil rights movement said that in this, in this verse, the big question oftentimes we ask is, what will happen to me if I help him? What will happen to me if I help him? But the bigger question, the bigger question, what will happen to him if I don't? There is a certain inhumanity when we live only in that first half and we say, what will happen to me? Human love. There is an inhumanity when we say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of those people. I'm afraid of that part of town, the Kingdom City, very unique strategic place. We're just south of some of the most wealthiest companies, Fortune 500, and just north of some of the most poorest communities. How do we move from the Levite who passed by on the other side and in the Greek? The same words are used here, Kai and John, and then he passed by on the other side, but then the Samaritan Kai and John, he saw him, same thing, but then he felt compassion. How do we move to this place where we a healing sacrament? It's just by being in community. It takes time. I was, I was tired on my flight back. And uh, the, the, the Uber, I took an Uber from Pasadena down to LAX, I was motion sick, motion sick for one hour. So I had to fly like that, I felt like doo-doo. And, and then, you know, lo and behold, I, 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 somebody, I bump into somebody who worships here at Kingdom City. And in fact, I'm gonna be at her home tomorrow night. That's not a coincidence. And so we're talking, I just want to watch my movie and go to sleep. But then the lady sitting next to my friend has a little baby, a baby of a different ethnicity. And the baby is crying. And I see the guy sitting in front of the baby, who's a different ethnicity. He doesn't have much tolerance to those people. And I can tell, he's looking around. And I'm telling myself, I feel like I, I need to help this woman. She's not, she's alone. Her husband's not there. Maybe I should just pick up the baby. Just, just help out. But I'm tired. I'm so tired, tired. So the moral of the story is I didn't do anything. I didn't pick up the baby. But the conversation went on in my head because I could see myself like that guy. I could see myself like that guy if there were no church folk on the plane. And I was in a part of the world where nobody knew that I was a pastor. I'd be that guy that would be like, can you shut your baby up? I can't take it anymore. That's why I don't wear a Christian bumper sticker on the back of my car. <laughs> don't do that. You can't be real. Because if nobody knew that I was a pastor, yes. And you know, I'm not going to crucify myself over that. But I felt compassion, and I think it takes time among community for ourselves to be healed. And then one more story, one more story, because we're wrapping it up, landing this plane. It, it was the same thing. This was decades ago. I was on a mission trip to China, decades ago. 
And how long is the flight back to, you know, from, how long is the flight from China back here? It's like a million years. It's a long flight. And a lady, an older white woman, had just adopted a Chinese baby. Um, and she was holding the baby and could not get the baby to stop crying. She couldn't get the baby to stop crying. New Chinese baby, new mother. And the baby cried from China to America. <laughs> And some poor dude, I think it was the same guy who was sitting in front of my flight from LAX, got up and he said, can you shut that baby up? And, and, and that would have been me too. And I remember the lady's response. And it was like, <laughs> her response, have you no compassion? <laughs> and I just shaking my head and I'm like, no, no, I Because it takes time amongst little babies from China and amongst kids from Compton, LA, and from people from that racial background, and from people from Ailey, and that neighborhood, and this city, and from that part, that type of work, only until then when we are integrated with them more and more and experiencing more of these relational connections. Do our hearts soften? Have you no compassion? I actually do a little bit more today than I did yesterday. A little bit more compassion. Just a little bit more compassion. But with somebody, just give that baby something. Some Benadryl or something. I have just a little bit more compassion today. Why? Because every time I show up on Sunday or on Wednesday night prayer meetings or adult Sunday school or community groups on Saturday, my heart is strangely warmed just a little bit more. Community heals me. Community is a healing sacrament. Healing sacrament. Healing sacrament. Last story and then we're done. Worship team, get ready to come up. There was a very cold night, a German winter, and there were a group of porcupines. The porcupines were cold. You can see where this story is going. And they spent the whole night negotiating distance. It's their spines. All of us have them. We all have sharp edges. And so the entire night negotiating distance, and after shuffling repeatedly in and out, they eventually found a place which they could still be warm without getting cricked. And this distance they called but you have to go pray a couple of times.